It took Mexican scholar, novelist, poet Cristina Rivera Garza 30 years to be able to write about what happened to her younger sister. Liliana was murdered by her abusive boyfriend in 1970. Rivera Garza's book Liliana's Invincible Summer has become part of a collective call for justice in Mexico, one of the most dangerous countries for women. The book's also a, a reclamation of Liliana, who was many things and promised to be many more. She was only 20 when she was killed. No one was ever charged. Cristina Rivera Garza is in an artist's residency in Berlin at the moment. And I asked her why she wrote the book. There are several answers for that question. Um, at the very beginning, I I was very interested in opening up the case back again. It was a very practical and a, and a legal goal, so to speak. Um, very soon I understood that it was going to be very difficult to actually get hold of the of the case, uh, of the file. Something that I had wanted to do for a long time, which was to write this story, started to uh, bug me again. I, I wanted to replace that f- file that I was not able to find as well. Your efforts to find this file going through the various departments of the Mexican justice system is like a it's like Kafka. You know, you go here and no, 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 you have to go there and no, this is the wrong department and you go... And it was never there. I mean, where is the file? Well, um, it took a while. And as uh, you described in this Kafkaesque search, I was hopeful at times... I lost all hope so many other times. Um, I was able to finally find the file, but that was after I finished the book. And did you find it in an obvious place or what had happened to it? Yeah, yeah. It had been, I, there had been a change of, of names of the institutions that had had it in the past. I had to hire a lawyer and conduct a, a, a different kind of search just to be able to locate the file. How extraordinary. I mean, the Mexican system seems fairly extraordinary from the beginning, fairly early in the book. You suggest that your father was asked for money by an officer from the Attorney General's office in order that they continue the investigation of Liliana's murder. You mean your father was asked for a bribe for them to continue to investigate the crime? I experienced what many families in under the same conditions have experienced in the past or are experiencing right now. Um, much of the research uh, about these um, terrible crimes have to be conducted and financed by the families themselves. And very often um, families are, are asked for, for bribes, exactly, to do the jobs that they are paid to do. This is part of the impunity that has allowed many of these crimes to continue. When you say these crimes, 
Do you mean the crimes that were formerly called in Mexico crimes of passion, but have now been called femicide? That is correct. For a long time in Mexico and, and in other areas of the world, um, uh, violence against women, lethal violence against women, has been have been uh, has been portrayed as uh, has been captured by the narrative of the passionate crime, which implicitly blames the victim and exonerates the perpetrator. It was not until 2012 when, at least in the Mexican Penal Code, uh, appeared the, the, these, uh, the, the official definition of the femicide as a crime against women because they are women. They are killed because they are women. And obviously, you think this was the case with Liliana. After conducting the interviews, after revising the archive that he had built of her, on herself, remembering what I was able to remember as well, um, yes, that is my conclusion. This is uh, this this Liliana was victim of femicide at the hands of her former of her ex-boyfriend, in fact, at that time, Angel Gonzalez Ramos, who ran away and remains to, date, to this day at large. Does he? Because I, I understood that the book had prompted some further revelations and you suspected that he had ended up in the United States and drowned? When I was promoting the book, I opened up um, an email address asking for tips about Angel Gonzalez Ramos, and one of them um, alerted me to the fact that he might have lived uh, all these years in Southern California under an alias, Giovanni, Michel Angelo Giovanni, and that he had drowned uh, precisely there on May the 2nd of 2020. I hired a detective who confirmed this data, but uh, the Mexican authorities have yet to confirm that this person who died in Southern California, Michel Angelo Giovanni, is in fact or was in fact Angel Gonzalez Ramos. How would it be possible to confirm that? Well, the Mexican authorities have to conduct all the research. They have all the information on their desks. I've been sharing the the data with them, and uh, I have kept them informed. Uh, they were supposed to have done something about this. That's what I was promised. And this was more or less uh, approximately two years ago. Uh, I have not received any kind of confirmation ever since. Do you think they just put it in the too hard basket now? I'm afraid so. What prompted you, again after all these years, to do what really solidified the book in your mind, to open those boxes of Liliana's writings, her diary, her journals, her letters, her sketching? I suppose that you have to be in a safe enough place to to think through all these materials. We need language, a, a, a different kind of narrative to tell this story from the point of view of the victims. And I think after all these years uh, and increasing feminist mobilizations in Mexico and throughout Latin America, uh, that language is now accessible to us. 
there is an audience as well. So when I gathered uh, the courage to open these boxes, uh, when I kind of stumbled on 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 this this rich material, I think I was finally ready to tell the story, the story most the, the most important story in my life. Would you have classified her death as femicide had you not read her writings? Deep in my mind, it was always a femicide. Everything indicated that that it could have been. Uh, I suppose I was very afraid to even think through that complete sentence. I, I guess it was just a matter of, of being stable enough, brave enough to see what was before my eyes. Is there any doubt in your mind that Ramos killed her? I I wanted to be fair when I was reading uh, the materials, when I interviewed Liliana's friends. I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. But the more I learned about the case, the more information I gathered, the more I learned about how domestic violence works. There is no doubt in my mind now that he killed my sister. And in the book, you name his mother. You identify as family. Why did you do that? There are two issues, um, two important issues, I believe, that have contributed to the persistence of femicides, uh, both in Mexico and abroad. abroad. One is impunity. So femiciders or killers know that they can get away with crime. They know that they can kill women um, without facing the consequences. And another important one is that civil society has developed a great tolerance for women's suffering. Very often, uh, the friends, neighbors, colleagues, family of of uh, femiciders, of men who commit these crimes, uh, are not... Um, You're saying they're collaborators in some way. In some way, exactly. That's the word that I was looking for. They are very willing to turn their eye. They're not denouncing them. And I think both issues, both coming from the state and from civil society, have contributed historically to keep these femicides growing in our societies. I mean, in that sense, the friends of Liliana to whom you speak, you and the rest of her family... You all have a certain burden of guilt. I mean, in the book, you say that that some people's That's reactions true. were, you know, why did you let her go out dressed exactly. like that sort of thing? I'm suggesting that maybe there's guilt, maybe there has been guilt on, on your part, because you never saw that Ramos was a possessive, potentially violent guy. And this is very, very much related to one of the main characteristics of these of these crimes. They are very closely, they are intermingled, intertwined with a very powerful language in our society, which is romantic love. 
Vehement is the word I think that Liliana used to describe Ramos in her writings. Vehement is in many ways an admirable trait because it indicates somebody who feels strongly about something. And if somebody feels strongly about you, then they must love you a lot. My reading of the whole situation is the following. Uh, When a society is forcibly silencing these conversations, when, um, when we lack the precise and compassionate language uh, to tell these stories in a different way, then it is very hard to actually tell these stories uh, as they happen or to tell these stories from the point of view of victims and their families. I think um, women's mobilizations, feminist mobilizations have been tremendously important in producing the language, that language that we need to tell these stories otherwise. Do you think that you've changed anything in Mexico? I know that um, women have been killed in record numbers in Mexico. I mean, femicide is a a very common crime in Mexico. And there have been, your book has been used in protests against it. Liliana's name has been used in protests against it. Do you think anything has changed? And what do you think it is about Mexico? Well, one of the things that I have would have to, to say is that even though numbers are, are indeed um, horrible for places like Mexico or Honduras, where 10 women are killed by their intimate partners on daily basis. Numbers are really dreadful in other areas of the world as well. Of course. Three women killed on daily basis in the United States. And I believe um, that number is quite similar in some European countries. Uh, some people uh, talk about a silent epidemic. This is a this is a world situation that is especially acute in places like Mexico, but is by no means limited to uh, this country. We also have to understand that femicides happen in all social classes, and that uh, they are not limited to specific types or specific nations. So, one of the the reasons why I was very interested in in having this book out in English is because I think there is very little conversation in uh, English-speaking countries about crimes um, such as this, 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 these femicides. Uh, on the other hand, writing the book in Mexico has been publishing, actually the publishing of the book in Mexico, I think has... Um, generated or has contributed, I should say, uh, to an ongoing conversation, one of the most important conversations that we can have uh, right now. Femicides are a tragedy, are taking women violently from our midst. We all lose when, when, when these women, when these young women, women in general, are taking from us. A younger generation of women have been very welcoming of Liliana's story, has um, allowed many more to come forward and, and to tell their stories as well. Sadly, it has not changed how justice works, uh, and there is much more to be done in that regard. Has it not? Has it not made the authorities more sensitive? 
to the demands for accountability when these crimes are committed? I would love to tell you that yes, it has, but sadly it has not. I think this is an uphill battle and it's a battle that will require many of us uh, to insist uh, again and again that this is crucial for our future. The other point that I suspect you were keen to make was that Liliana was strong, independent, articulate, ambitious, her own person. She was not the stereotype of a victim. That stereotype is wrong, isn't it? You know, it's very hard to, to write stories against patriarchy in the language of patriarchy. It's very hard to write stories of violence and questioning, right, the, the, the reasons, the, the origins of such a violence. It's a slippery terrain. Um, I was very tempted to write this book at the very beginning uh, with these more conventional ideas of what a victim is. In reading my sister's own writings, I, I was convinced that this is not how she saw herself. This was not the idea that she had of herself on this world, and I had to honor precisely that conviction. It seems to me that Liliana was a victim of femicide, but her life was way more than that. And in order for me to honor that experience, it was very important to pay attention to both, to the uneven power relations that structured the relationship she was into, uh, and on the other hand, the way in which she saw herself and her future and the world that she wanted for herself and others in that future. I'm talking to Cristina Rivera Garza about her book about her sister's death. It's called Liliana's Invincible Summer. So Liliana was killed in what was formerly known as a crime of passion. But in Mexico has been changed this crime to femicide. We've spoken about the, the, the justice system, we've talk, spoken about the society, but what has writing this book done for you as a family? We, for a long time, were caught in this very difficult mourning process. It was, as I said, forcibly silenced. Stuck in grief, was, I think you've said. Stuck in grief. It was a an extremely lonely place, uh, full of those uh, complicated emotions, guilt indeed, and shame even. Uh, writing the book and sharing this story um, has allowed my family and myself to enlarge this mourning process, to, to be wide awake to the notion that we are joined by others, that we are not by ourselves, that, that we belong to this larger family of mourners. Um, that in and of itself has been incredibly relevant. On the other hand, this mourning process is, is also a matter of uh, critical thinking and critical practice. And uh, I think being embraced by others also has um, prompted us to be way more alert and way more willing to engage in, in this public conversation and, and public demonstrations against um, 
these crimes. You've got a, a, a terribly poignant quote from your father in the book. He sounds a, a really lovely man. And he says to you, don't ask me, please. I cannot repeat them. The words that the police agents used to describe our daughter's life, our daughter's body, dirty her, I won't repeat them. And he's been carrying that all these years. That's a terrible, terrible thing. It is indeed. And I think deep down there is this need not to re-victimize a victim, uh, caring for our death, defending them even when they are dead. There is another issue there in that passage that was very important to me. The notebook can tell it all. Every single book, or at least this book, also has that space that only belongs to each one of us, the kinds of things that we cannot uh, and shall not share. The book is also embracing that. And I think this is something that can be communicated, shared in a different kind of language, in a different kind of silence too. I would like to think that this book is um, out there telling Liliana's story, that it's been careful enough also to keep those spaces, to protect those spaces where we go back just to be with ourselves. Did I read that... When you were receiving one of Mexico's top awards for this book, a, a colleague or the, the guy who was presenting it or somebody in a fairly high position in that ceremony, I'm sorry to be so vague, criticised the book for not telling us more about Ramos? That did happen. Unbelievable. And, uh, I find that unbelievable. It is. It, it was quite offensive. It, it is very telling also of how dominant is this narrative about the, the passionate crime narrative, the idea that these crimes are extraordinary, that somehow they are related to some obscure, the obscure psychology of the, of the killer. On the other hand, this book is conveying, I think, working with the idea that these crimes are not extraordinary, but structural. And the only way in which we can get to the, to the heart of them is by telling the story of the, of the victims of these crimes. I think there has been enough attention to the perpetrators. I think there are entire industries generating profits out of uh, the killing of women. Yeah, you're talking about uh, the, true, the true crime industry, essentially. Exactly. Where the, and, perpe and, uh, where the perpetrator is seen as much more interesting than the person exactly. that is dead. And I think the, the, the man who was uh, needing, in need of uh, more of these stories was precisely reacting to, to these uh, stereotypical uh, notions of uh, why these crimes occur in the first place. Telling the story from the point of view of the victims is not only an option. I think it allows us to place the crime in a very different context. And it's also uh, trying to place accountability on both the system, patriarchy as such, and its players, these violent men, who are not extraordinary, who are an essential um, a component of the system. 
You mentioned the Chilean feminist collective, Lia Las Tesis, who, who did that very powerful performance. It's not my fault. It's not what I was wearing. Uh, it's not where I was. The rapist is you. Their manifesto is called Set Fear on Fire. Does that, does that mean something particular to you, that phrase? Well, you have to go through a lot of um, stages. At least that was my experience in writing this story. Overwhelming feelings of guilt and shame to um, to anger, anger and rage as well. So uh, I think it's very important to go through them. I totally understand young women who have been taken the public public arenas and public language, expressing their willingness to set everything on fire. Um, I understand the anger. I I feel it very close to me as well. I'm convinced that, that the only way out is to organize, to work together, to, to continue producing a language precise and compassionate to tell these stories otherwise. I think it's, it, it's going to require a lot of uh, collaborative work. Uh, both intellectually and as as activists on the streets. I think this is the fight of our lives. Can you tell me about the title, Liliana's Invincible Summer? This is a, this is a quote from a, a work by a French philosopher and writer, Albert Camus. Liliana had used this quote to soothe a friend of hers who, has, uh, who was going through some heartbreak. Uh, the phrase was also, she had handwritten it, had placed it on, on her desk. Uh, we found it there. For that moment on, I've been, uh, every time that I think about this, this quote, I think of Liliana and vice versa. It became one and the same. To me, is the indication that Liliana was, was ready back then, in that summer of 1990, was ready to leave this relationship behind uh, had realized the power that resided in her, and she was ready to leap forward. I, I wanted her to to be there in this book. I, I wanted to uh, support that that forward movement too, and to celebrate her life as well as marking her death. I think that's so important in these sto stories involving violence. It's so common to emphasize the, and, and rightfully so, the reasons of the violence, the, the, the mechanics of it. But very often we, we forget that there are lives at stake right here, um, complex, uh, dense, beautiful lives as well. So it was very important for me to, in this book, to talk about Liliana's life as much as the moment of, of the femicide. I, I refused to reduce Liliana, the richness that Liliana was to that moment. And, and as you said, in many ways, I wanted to, I wanted readers to experience what I experienced when I, when I opened up those boxes and, and started to read uh, her letters, which was this overwhelming sensation of her presence surrounding me. So I wanted that presence in the world and share that presence with my readers as well. That was Christina Rivera-Gaza. 
whose book is called Liliana's Invincible Summer. 